0: 1 Corinthians 14. It's a long, wild, crazy chapter, which I'm so excited to go through. But before we dive into it, um, have any of you guys ever heard the saying, um, I am spiritual, but not religious? Have you ever heard that saying before, right? Where you're talking to someone and and they say, yeah, no, I'm spiritual but not religious. And oftentimes what that means, at least in my experience when I'm talking to somebody, is they want to have some kind of higher power, want to have some kind of meaning and purpose to their life that transcends their own person, but they don't want to go to church. They don't want to be involved in a genuine Christian community or a church um, in a sort of institutional sense. And I was at the Illinois River uh, last summer and I was talking with someone who was kind of along these lines as, what, as happens when you're at the Illinois River. And um, I was talking to him, and yeah, yeah thanks. <laughs> um, and I was talking to him, and I knew that he had grown up in church, I, like I'd known his family and stuff, and so I was just talking to him, And, and so I was just like, "Hey, so where, where do you go to church now?" And he looked at me and goes, "This is my church." And at that moment, I knew that deep down, what he was wanting was to be able to have the religious experience, the, the, the forgiveness, the meaning and purpose that comes along with a God, but not church. On the other side, there are some churches that are so good at the forms, the traditions, the structure, the uh, the performance aspect of it, that then the whole spiritual experience side of it then gets a little bit lost. And oftentimes we can, sometimes people can swing back and forth between wanting this super spiritual experience and the church is really the problem and I gotta get away from the church in order to be able to get genuine spiritual experience, or we can swing to the other side and say, no, it's all about the form, it's all about the traditions, it's all about the rules, and then the spiritual experience ends up falling to to the wayside. And Paul the Apostle speaks into that, where he gives us, in a lot of ways, a lot of different orders, a lot of different procedures, and a lot of different instructions on how to truly navigate a genuine church service. But at the same time, in the middle of that genuine church service, that is correct in its form, there's also power that comes from the Spirit. And it is in that tension that we're going to be able to hopefully be able to explore this passage and be able to find what true, real, genuine church is supposed to look like. And so first, how I'm kind of breaking this down is we're going to see the spiritual church. Then we're going to see the orderly church. And then finally, we'll see the real church. So first, the spiritual church. Let's... First, let me clarify what I mean by, by the spiritual church. When I talk about spiritualness as far as what, what the Bible means, there's two different senses in, in which the Bible talks about the spirit. One sense, as you're reading through this, um, you, you'll see that he talks with his spirit. And that's the immaterial part of who we are as a, as a person. So we're we're body, which is physical, and then we're soul slash spirit, which is our personalities, our uh, immaterial aspects of who we are, emotions, things like that. And they're connected, they interplay off of each other, but they're two distinct things. And so whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word spirit, it can sometimes mean the immaterial part of who we are as people, but it also can mean another thing. And that is, it can be talking about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the third person of God. He isn't a power to be manipulated. He isn't a a, a force to be grappled with and controlled and then harnessed. Instead, he's genuinely a person to be known. And the Holy Spirit has been working throughout the entire Bible. In the Old Testament, he came and and, and empowered some of the most powerful people in the Old Testament. Hopefully that doesn't keep going, but we'll see. Um, He empowered some of the most... (laughs) amazing people in the Old Testament, like Samson, or, or like David. He comes upon them in order to be able to, in, to give them the strength to walk in the ministry and the calling that the Lord had them on their life. And then the Holy Spirit came and anointed Jesus. There at the baptism, He came and was baptized underneath, and the, the dove descended on Him as the Holy Spirit. And then after He was death, burial, resurrection, He said, wait, In Jerusalem to his disciples. Wait. Don't go any further. Go wait in Jerusalem because then you will receive power from on high. And they go and they wait. And there in the upper room, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes upon them and anoints them with incredible power. And now throughout the church age, you and me, we get to experience the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives that was prefigured in the Old Testament, that was brought upon through Jesus' life and ministry will ultimately be consummated in the kingdom, where we get to live in the Holy Spirit in its absolute fullness. That's what I mean when I say the Holy Spirit. It's not some sort of transcendentalism where we try and get out of ourselves or something like that. It's Instead, it truly is a person himself. So that's what I mean by the spiritual church in that sense, and, and what the Holy Spirit does is now in the church is he empowers us in order to be able to build up the body of Christ to advance the kingdom, and there's a few different ways he does that, but one of the ways he does is through the gifts. And some people talk about the, the two gifts that we're talking about tonight, prophecy and tongues, as if they had ceased, as if they had passed, that they're no longer in play today and I talked about that a couple weeks ago and so I'm not going to go through those arguments again and so if you want to you can listen to them or talk to me afterwards but instead tongues and prophecy are two of the gifts that the Holy Spirit uses in order to be able to advance the kingdom of God in the time that we are right now and so I'm going to go through and define both of those and hopefully we don't all freak out (laughs) so tongues (laughs) In the Bible, there tongues as a spiritual gift, there are two different senses in which the gift of tongues are used. The first sense is found in the book of Acts chapter 2. The disciples, they were up in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost to empower them, and tongues of fire were on their head, and they started speaking human languages that they didn't previously understand. They were speaking human languages, and people on the outside heard them speaking in their own native language. And they came to them and said, what are you doing? I'm hearing the works of God in my own language. So in one sense, the Holy Spirit can give people the ability to speak in languages that they they don't previously know in order to be able to proclaim the works of God in another language that they, that they don't know. And while I haven't ever experienced something like that, I've heard stories of people being on the mission field and being able to speak a language that they didn't previously know because of the Holy Spirit's power and in a very tense situation. So that's one sense in which the, whole, the gift of tongues is used. But the second sense is what we find here in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And this one, um, look, look with me at, at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 14 it says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, for he utters mysteries in the spirit. So, it's saying that he's not speaking to men, but to God. Therefore, it can't be the same one as Acts chapter 2. This is something different. Instead, this is a heavenly language that's spoken to God that no human really understands. And, and, and also, later on, Uh, we see in verses 14 through 18, it explains it even more. It says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. In other words, there's this immaterial part of who we are that is praying, but my mind, the physical, the understanding, doesn't quite understand what I'm saying. And it says in verse 15, What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. And so he here gives us kind of an explanation if we jump down to verse 17 it says for you may be giving thanks well enough but the other person is not being built up in other words it's not a human language no one understands it in verse 18 I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you so Paul the Apostle himself spoke in tongues in this sense of praying to God in a heavenly language and this gift is meant to be used in two different ways. The first is in personal private prayer. In personal private prayer where you're communing with the Lord, the Holy Spirit can then give us the ability to be able to speak in a language that, that is a heavenly language. And, and what it does, if, if you look at verse 4, it says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. When we speak in a tongue, when we're praying to the Lord in, in the tongue, it builds up our spirit. It builds up the immaterial part of, our, of who we are. And it's encouraging. It's fortifying. It's something that, that is a, a building up of who we are. And that's what is meant to happen when we speak in tongues, when we pray in tongues by ourselves. However, if tongues are used in public, which is what was being used here in, in Corinth, if it's being used in public, then there needs to be an interpretation. If there isn't an interpretation, then it's it shouldn't be spoken in public. And so look with me back at the passage verses 27 through 28. It says, "If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if no one if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So if tongues are meant to, are going to be used in a public setting, he says very specifically that there must be an interpretation, otherwise it's an improper use of the gift. And notice that, that it says that, um, that everyone is supposed to go in turn, that not everyone is supposed to be speaking all at the same time, which means some people think that tongues are some sort of almost out-of-body experience where you're out of control. That wouldn't be the case if if he says, like, everyone take your turn, don't, like, just all start speaking at the same time, like, everyone take your turn. In other words, it's it's not some sort of ecstatic out-of-body experience that cannot be controlled, it's something that is able to be controlled. It's something that you can then participate in or not participate in, because everyone can take their turn. And also, some people view the gift of tongues as a sign of spiritual maturity. There are certain denominations or certain uh, church groups that say, basically, you've arrived in the Holy Spirit's uh, power and everything once you have spoken in tongues. I don't know. Has anyone ever, like, heard of that before or something like that? Yeah, okay. So, oddly enough, if you read this passage in chapter 13— tongues is not used as a sign of spiritual maturity. Instead, the overall tenor of chapter 14 is the emphasis on how good prophecy is and really how secondary tongues are. And then when it says in, in chapter 13, he, he's, he's speaking of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like tongues and things. And he says that when I was a child, I thought like a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. In other words, the, 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 the gift of tongues is not a sign of spiritual maturity, it can be a sign of spiritual immaturity in the fact that it's childish. And here was an incredible quote that I thought was hilarious. Um, It it was by this guy named Godet Comments. He says, It is indeed the characteristic of a child to prefer the amusing to the useful. I was like, oh, God. The brilliant to the solid. And this is what the Corinthians did by their marked taste for tongues. In other words, tongues and prophecy and the spiritual gifts are meant to be supplemental to our Christian walk, not foundational. Have you guys ever taken a supplement before or a vitamin? It's a, it's a, it's a boost that we take in order to be able to help our immune system to be able to, to keep going. It's not our everyday meal. It's a supplement that's what the gifts prophecy and tongues they're not meant to be foundational they aren't meant to be our daily diet dose of spirituality instead it's supposed to be a supplement of vitamin that that happens sometimes in order to be able to encourage us in our walk with the lord and so when people view tongues as the sign of spiritual maturity it's ultimately trying to take and only just pound vitamin c every day and you're like that's just not healthy for you (laughs) So, now how does this work practically? That's kind of what it is, what its goal is, and stuff like that. How does this work practically? Um, I don't really have much experience. Uh, <laughs> I thought I spoke in tongues when I was a kid, but I think I was just making it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, so I don't have necessarily a good example, but I can't get past it scripturally. I can't. And so I do believe that it is for today. And here's how it seems to, to work. Is that when we go and we're spending time with the Lord in our personal quiet times, praying to Him, you're seeking His face. We're not asking something for Him. Instead, we're truly ministering to Him and, and seeking after Him. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon that prayer time in a special, unique way in order to be able to give you a unique communing moment with the Lord, to be able to minister to him in a supernatural, spiritual way. Or, if it's meant in public, then someone can speak in tongues, and an interpreter comes and interprets. I don't think it's supposed to look like everyone else speaking at the same time, or someone on stage speaking without any kind of interpretation. I think that's just a misuse of the gift. So, that's the gift of tongues but throughout this thing as I said he specifically emphasizes the importance and the place and the primacy of prophecy he, he, he says at the very be- beginning earnestly desire the spiritual gifts especially that you may prophesy so what is prophecy you got this Thomas I believe in you <laughs> what is prophecy Look with me back at the passage. Um, Look with me back down in verse 29 through 32. This will give us an insight as to what prophecy is. He says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. Again, it's controlled. It's not some sort of ecstatic experience. But you can prophesy one by one. So that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So what is prophecy? It says in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another sitting there. He, he equates prophecy to revelation. So how I define prophecy is, um, is spontaneous revelation to God's people. It's spontaneous because it says literally he was just sitting there and then revelation was made to him. So it seems pretty spontaneous to me. <laughs> but it's not spontaneous in the sense that it's uncontrolled. Spontaneous revelation that is controlled from God. And revelation, not in the sense of, we we believe that the Bible is God's special revelation, which means this is his clear authoritative word that is primal, it's the first thing, it's the the yardstick that everything else is evaluated by. Yet, it says in in Romans chapter 1 that there are other forms of revelation, and one of those primarily is general revelation is what theologians call it, and that is the revelation that we can see through nature, where we look out in nature, and, and we can see that God's incredible grace is displayed, in the fact that he doesn't just have one tree, he has hundreds of trees. It's like, why a hundred? Because he's gracious, and he just throws them everywhere. We, we can look at general revelation and see incredible character attributes of God, because he's revealing himself. It says in, in the book of Psalms that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. That's general revelation. And I would put prophecy at the same level of general revelation. Has anyone ever looked at general revelation and got something wrong about God? Yeah. <laughs> People have looked at, looked at general revelation, looked at creation, and, and ended up thinking, you know what, God must be totally random and... Um, Totally uncontrolled because sometimes storms come in and they blow out, and then it's all this kind of crazy stuff, and they get wrong thoughts about God from general revelation. In other words, it can, it's true revelation, but it needs to be understood correctly, and it needs to be understood in light of the scripture. And I would say that prophecy is the same sense of revelation as general revelation through creation. Yes, it can be used well, it can bring accurate representation to God, but it needs to be evaluated against the scripture. And it can be misunderstood and misused. But it is still spontaneous revelation to God's people. So if someone comes up to you and says, thus saith the Lord, you can say, no, he didn't. <laughs> he did not speak to you. Only the Bible can say that. Only the Bible can say, thus saith the Lord. Prophecy is a second tier of revelation. And its goal Here's the goal. So that's kind of what it is, a spontaneous revelation to God's people. And what its goal is, is in verse three. Look with me at verse three. It says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. So again, he's contrasting tongues and prophecy. Tongues is for the internal building up. Prophecy is for the external building up. It's building up other people. It's for the encouragement, the conviction, the consolation of other people. It's ultimately to make them better. It's not to build us up. And so it's, and that's why Paul views it as better than tongues, because it's less selfish. It's for other people's sake. It's for the building up of other people. And also, it's not only that for the building up of the body, but look with me at verses 24 through 25. It says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or, or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. And he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. It's also not only for the building up of the body, but it's for the conversion and conviction of the world. That through prophecy, something might be revealed. So that way they could then say, truly God is among you. Fall on their face and repent, and be changed, and be saved. That is what prophecy is meant to do. It's meant to build us up, and cause other people to be changed, and transformed, and to be saved. So that's what it is. And again, I don't have very good examples for this. Instead, I only have a couple couple examples. Um, and these are both kind of negative examples, and I'll explain why after. Uh, I, well, I was in college my freshman year. I was a part of a church plant um, down in LA, and one day, one Saturday, we decided to go and uh, do like an evangelism time and so before we went out to go like street witnessing and stuff which is a really fun experience if you haven't done it before it's quite the time. Um, So we all got together at the park and we all decided to pray and say okay Lord like if you would have something to like show to us before we go out there that might be able to help us proclaim the name of God and bring about salvation and stuff like that, and then, then show it to us. And, and the guy who was leading it was like, maybe it might be like a color or, 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 like, so, or like some sort of name or something like that. The Lord might reveal it to you. And so I'm sitting there with my eyes closed and it's the sunny day and we're just sitting in the park and I'm just like, okay, Lord, like, I guess this is what we're supposed to do. Like, just waited a couple minutes and then like, we all stood up and was like, all right, I guess paired up into like groups of three or something and started started to leave and so we were talking with each other as we we're walking around and like so did you like get anything did you get anything and they're like no and I was like did you get anything I was like well Kaz saw something like maybe like red or orange <laughs> I don't know maybe and and they're like all right so they like keep walking or whatever and like I told that to like a few other people and so we go out and go evangelizing no one responded we came back <laughs> came back to the park and I was talking with some of the other people and uh, they were like, yeah, so I, w- I was walking and we, we saw these balloons. They were red and orange balloons. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, what? And they were like, yes, yeah. so we just like walked up to the house. It was just like on the side of the house. We just walked up the house to go talk to him. So we just went up and went to go talk to him. And and then it turned out to be a kid's birthday party. So they told us to leave. So we left. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, that did not work out well, and I thought about it more, and it was a bright sunny day with my eyes closed. And if you've ever closed your eyes on a bright sunny day, what color do you see? (laughs) A nice (laughs) reddish-orange-ish. And I realized I was just seeing the inside of my eyelids. (laughs) Then, that same year, I was taking a class at Biola called Biblical Interpretation and Spiritual Formation and this my professor she is a wonderful woman of god she's an expert on puritan theology so she's like super hardcore on like fasting and stuff and so it's like she's intense she's great and at the end of the semester uh, she decided to do like a foot washing thing where she was going to wash all of our feet as students at the end of the year. And so I was like, oh, so sweet. So I like go and like sit there and she like starts washing my feet. And she, she like looks up at me and like looks down, and looks up, and looks down, and looks up and says, I think this may or may not be, but you're going to be going through a really big trial here soon. And all the sweetness that was there just evaporated. (laughs) I was like, okay. (laughs) And so she was just like, so just stay close to the Lord and stuff. And I was like, all right, thanks. (laughs) And just left. And that hung over me for months where I was like, is something bad just about ready to drop on me? And ultimately, nothing really did. And just life just kept moving on. Just the normal bad things that happened in life just kind of kept happening. And so you just kept moving on. And I say those stories because, I, I for the reason it is because I think a lot of us can sometimes have those experiences where someone came up to us and said something and then it ended up being not working, or we tried it one time and we were only just seeing the inside of our eyelids. And it's easy to then start just disdaining it or just like scoffing at it and thinking that it really doesn't have a place in our in our day and age, which is why 1 Corinthians 5 sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. He says, don't despise prophecies because it's so easy to do so. It's literally in spite of a lot of my personal experiences that I believe that these things are still for today. Don't despise them, but instead test everything. So again, if someone comes and says, thus saith the Lord, you If someone comes and says, hey, I feel like I might have something for you, then you can receive it, and you test it, and you test it by evaluating it against Scripture, because it's secondary to Scripture. And so, how does this work? Again, this is supplemental. It's not the foundation of our Christian walk, but how does this look practically? If you come to group, and you feel like, you know, I think that there might be I really feel like I need to talk to this person and give them this Bible verse, or just kind of encourage them in this way, or something along those lines, or you get some sort of like picture or color even, like you might get something. You can go and talk to that person and say, you know, I, I don't know if this would make sense at all. I don't know if this would resonate with you at all, but this is just kind of what I'm feeling. I just wanted to let, let, let you know. And then if you're the person receiving that, you say, okay, well, I'm gonna first, thank you. I appreciate that for having the boldness to step out and do that. But, like, I'm, I'm gonna test it against the scripture and I'm also gonna test it with my community and see, like, some of my close friends to see if this actually resonates and, and aligns with where I'm at with life and, and with the scripture and all those kinds of things. And that's how, that's how it's supposed to be. And if the person gets it wrong, that's okay. A lot of people look at general revelation and get it wrong. So it, it's okay. That, that, well, that, that wasn't from the Lord. It was just the inside of your eyelids. That's okay. Or. What can happen is if, say, you have like a word for the entire group. If you say, you know, Steven, I really feel like that, that this group really needs to hear this one thing. It says that the, the, the people are supposed to evaluate, and and what that would be is you would come to me and and you would tell me what you're thinking or what you're feeling, and I would confirm with a couple other people in the group to be able to see if this is really something that we would want to share for, for the group. And then if we decide, yes, I think this would be encouraging for everybody, then, will have you come up and say something. So, that's how I see the biblical mandate of how to handle prophecy and tongues. And the, and the church in Corinth, just a reminder, they were a lot of things. They had people who were getting drunk at communion. They had people who were, one guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. Like, they were, they were a crazy bunch. But one thing you can't say about their church services, you can't say they were boring. <laughs> You cannot say they were boring. And what my heart truly is for our group is that we would truly be able to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and have an experience of God's power that is so much richer and deeper than the Illinois guy could ever even imagine. But that only happens when there's the order in the church. The very last verse says, but all things should be done decently and in order. The orderly church. And this is where I'm going to kind of address that idea of spiritual, not religious, and why it is so important for us to be involved in church, to be involved in community. And the reason is, is that guy who is out in the Illinois, the God that he finds... The God of the Illinois River that's out there, the God that he finds out there, will never disagree with him. I've never met someone who is just out there trying to find their own personal spiritual experience, never met the person who says, yeah, I wrestle with my God because I disagree with him sometimes. Instead, they always simply affirm whatever it is that they are thinking or feeling that God only ever affirms, never disagrees. And if you worship a God that only ever affirms you, never disagrees with you, then you will never have a personal relationship. You will never have a personal relationship with God. If God cannot disagree with you, then it will never be a personal relationship. It's like trying to have a, a relationship with Alexa. She's just gonna say back exactly what you asked for. It's not a personal relationship, it's a machine. It's made up, it's a figment of the imagination. And so the personal experience that he's looking for, he's trying to find the personal experience, a genuine revelation of God in a true relationship, he will never be able to find it unless he is in church and interacting with a God that can actually disagree with him. So the thing that he is looking for is ultimately undermined and it is only be able to found in church where there's true spiritual experience because there's a God that can disagree. And that leads us to the passage that we read that everyone went, "Ooh!" look with me at verse 33. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in the churches. (laughs) For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission. As the law also says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. If you don't ever wrestle and strive with God, then you're worshiping a figment of your imagination. If you're offended, if you have to struggle, if you're like wrestling with this passage right here, then that means you're dealing with something real. If you don't ever wrestle with it, you're never gonna ultimately experience something real. And so what is this passage really saying? What this passage is really saying is the word for women can also be translated wives it's the same word in the Greek and being that he references husbands it's probable that what he is saying is that if there's a wife that has a question for the husband then don't speak it to everybody but then just wait until afterwards because women were typically uneducated and so it would be a detriment to to the church community and the church body to have to explain everything along the way instead just you can talk it all out at, at, at home That doesn't really apply because women are totally educated today, so it doesn't really apply that much, but he digs into something a little deeper by saying it's what the law also says, and when you go back to the law, when you go back to the book of Genesis, you see that God did ordain a certain structure in marriage and with gender identity, which I talked about this a couple weeks ago, and Matt also talked a little bit about gender identity in our culture on the Edgewater Instagram, which I highly encourage you to listen to. And he's saying that there is a specific order. There is certain roles that men and women ought to take in a relationship with one another, and especially in the context of marriage. And I, again, I talked about this a while ago. And so I'm not going to dive into exactly what that looks like, but it's ultimately the husband being the servant leader of the home and the wife being the joyful supporter. And if you're here tonight and that just makes you angry, (laughs) or if that's offensive, or if you have to struggle with that because you've had terrible examples of male leadership in the past, or if you makes it angry and frustrate you, then I wanna tell you, that means you're interacting with something real. You're not just worshiping a figment of your imagination and it's actually good for us to struggle with certain things because the God that we make up in our minds will will never ultimately challenge us. So the fact that it's challenging us is a good thing. And you know what it does when we're challenged? We actually grow. When we're challenged, that's when we change. And if you think, I don't really need to grow, I'm already totally mature. Just think back of who you were five years ago. Who were you five years ago? Are you embarrassed at all at that person? (laughs) Thank you. Now, fast forward five years. It's the same thing is going to happen to who you are now. We all need to grow. We all need to change. We all need to, to develop. And that will only happen when we serve a God who can disagree with us. A God who's actually real. And we're getting close to the end. And the only place that this happens truly is in church. Because the God of the Illinois will never disagree with us only the God that happens in church that is revealed in the Bible can actually disagree with us. And what is, how does he reveal himself to us? What, what does he show about his character? And that leads us to the real church. First the spiritual church, then the orderly church. That's absolutely essential. It's the only way to get genuine relationship. But finally, the real church, the real church, real church is an experience of God As he's revealed himself to be. And he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses says that there's gonna be a prophet. We've talked a lot about prophesying and prophets and stuff. Moses says there's gonna be a prophet that comes later on and God's words are gonna be in his mouth and he's gonna be able to reveal who God is. And Jesus comes and he is the true prophet who comes to show us who God is because he is God. And what does he show us about who God is? That the God, he is the pursuer of the brokenhearted. He's the pursuer of the lost. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And he's the one who is humble enough to die in order to be able to save. That's what the God, that's the God that we serve. That's the God who revealed himself there 2,000 years ago through the person of Jesus. And he's the God who says, yes, you might be lost, you might be far away, but I'm going to die in order to be able to save you. And in fact, I have to die in order to be able to save you because you are in sin, you are dead in your trespasses and sins, and you cannot have a a right relationship with me. Yet I'm going to take that sin upon myself so that way if you believe in me, you now can have the right relationship, the spiritual experience, and the fulfillment that you've been looking for out at the Illinois River. Here's where you can find it. It's through a relationship with Jesus and the fact that he paid the price for you to have that real relationship and that the the relationship is real. It's not a figment of our imagination and it's not just ending up worshiping ourselves. Instead, it's something real because he has actually come and he has actually died and he has actually risen again and he is actually coming back because this is real church. This isn't something that's fake. This isn't something that's made up. This isn't something that that is here today and gone tomorrow. Instead, it's something so real, so tangible that it's solid enough to last all eternity. That is how God has revealed himself to us, is through the gospel. And it is true, real church is experiencing that. Experiencing who he is. The fact that not just everybody is sinners, but I am a sinner. And not that God died on the cross for everybody, but he died on the cross to save me. A genuine experience of God's love and grace in the gospel. That is what real church looks like. And that will fulfill the ache in the guy of the Illinois heart. That is where we find true spiritual reality. So I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be able to experience that truth. That through your grace, we are saved, we are made known, and that we can have genuine, real relationship with you. Not something that's fake, not something that's contrived, but instead something that's genuine and real. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in all of our hearts and in all of our lives so that way we can truly follow after you. Lord, we simply commit ourselves to you in whatever way that might look. Lord, we know that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And the way that you have saved is so amazing. And we pray that, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who needs to be built up, I pray that they would not leave tonight without being built up, encouraged, and spurred on to love and good works. And if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who hasn't truly committed himself to you, repented and been baptized, I pray that, Lord, they would. And that we would all truly be a part of a real church. An experience of the reality of who you are in the gospel. So we commit ourselves to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.